0: Heroes get remembered. Here's the wind-up. Legends never die. Basketball hits deep the right. Way back
1: there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. I,
0: I consider myself, myself. the luckiest what man, man. On, the on the face of the earth.
1: Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9:46 p.m.
0: With the men who saw and made that history, Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. on perfect game.
1: Stories from the 1930s
0: <laughs> to the 21st century.
1: This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch?
0: Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is episode 13 as we continue our trip through baseball's history, one conversation and many stories at a time. Thanks for finding us, and I hope both you and your families are safe and well during all of what is going on in the world today. I hope this episode and others here help fill some of your day with good thoughts thoughts of not only the game, but of what is to come on fields everywhere sooner instead of later. I want to thank Keith Ippolito, the man who works both the opening and close of these. And I love our texts and phone calls that come after we discover that a player, of course, had a song written about him by none other than Jerry Jeff Walker in this case and the highlights that need to be included to round out this podcast. So thanks again, Keith. If you are new to hardball, the goal was never to offer up Q&As, interviews, depositions with these men. It was to find some of the best to ever play the game and talk to them about their personal trip from somewhere USA or in some cases from other countries to that first day in a major league uniform and stadium. The people they played with, against, and the games and moments they were involved with. These are conversations that when done well, there is no phone line separating me, our guest, and most importantly you. Today we're going to travel to Texas. a First ballot Hall of Famer who threw up some numbers that will never, ever be touched. Lynn Nolan Ryan Jr. was Texas born, Texas bred, and well you know the rest. And if you don't think where he is from didn't make him in large part who he is, You don't understand how he was raised and who he is to this day. If you don't believe that working a paper route between 1 and 4 a.m. with his father from the ages of 8 to 18 doesn't mature you and create a quiet drive and personal responsibility, just wake up and walk around your neighborhood at those hours for a week and see if you want to do it for a second. How Texas is Nolan Ryan? There are not one, not two, but three different statues of the man throughout the state. They do it big, and they hold proud to their own. So where does Nolan Ryan fall in a conversation of how great was he and how does his greatness compare to the best to ever play? What boxes does he check? Well, he's got the nickname, the Ryan Express. Perfect, and that a movie from the mid-1960s, Von Ryan's Express, played right into the way he pitched. A wild ride for sure. Check the movie out and watch some highlights of Nolan. Records, he just doesn't hold them. He owns them. When it comes to records, most sports names and numbers need to be written in pencil. Nolan Ryan's name is etched in stone when it comes to some of his. The fight for all time. Strikeouts, 5,714. All time walks, 2,795. Seasons played, 27. No hitters, 7. One hitters, 12. Two hitters, 18. And three hitters, 31. Wild pitches, 277. 50 more than knuckleballer Phil Necro. 11 strikeout titles, four of them after his 40th birthday, and 383 in a season will be standing after every stadium we know today crumbles. 24 seasons of 100 plus innings pitched and a couple of handfuls more. Every one of those fights is for second place. Ryanitis, the sudden I don't feel good, I think I'll take the night off disease was a real thing. And please remember this. He accumulated these numbers in an era when guys didn't strike out 100 times. That season he struck out 383. 1973, 10. 10 American League hitters struck out 100 times. That number's over 100 now. The argument against Nolan Ryan is an all-time all-timer. Well, he never won a Cy Young award. He finished second once. And that's it. Only seven postseason starts, one World Series game appearance. I will counter with this. His number has been retired by three different teams. He owns the distinction of being the New York Mets' worst trade in franchise history, this side of Tom Seaver, because that one was much more sentimental on top of everything else, including abilities. When fan voting for the All-Century team was a public referendum on your thoughts on players and their all-time place in the game's history, Nolan Ryan got more votes than any pitcher. And while it was a popularity contest every bit as much as a scientific poll, it does mean something. Here's my summary of the man's time on the mound. Nolan Ryan was no drugstore cowboy. He's the real thing. And while I don't believe he is the greatest pitcher of all time, his career and time spent 60 feet and 6 inches away from the 1,417 different hitters he faced was truly the most fascinating. Here you go. Lynn Nolan Ryan Jr.
1: It takes a madman to run this gauntlet of death. It takes guts and glory, arrogance and fury. It takes the man they call Von Ryan. Well, our story starts in Texas. It's always fun to talk with a legend. You know, Ryan is a legend. And uh, I had a lot of battles with him. I I actually faced him 91 times. And uh, he struck me out 13 times, okay? He walked me 19 times. He was scared of me. Here it
0: is. He strikes him out. Second time Blackwell has struck out, and that's the fourth strikeout of the afternoon for Ryan, and he has tied the all-time strikeout mark in the Major League, number 3,508.
1: Uh, the one story I remember about Noly was the night before the strike in 1981. I was sitting on a, uh, a National League record, Stan Musial's record, and I got a hit off of him the first time up. And the next three times, he struck me out, I didn't even swing at a pitch, and he just... But took his belt buckle and said, you're not going to break that record off of me. And I had to wait 56 days to break the record. <laughs> the 1-2 pitch strike. Great call on Mills. And there's the record breaker. So Ryan strikes out Tim Blackwell to catch Walter Johnson. And he strikes out Brad Mills to own that
0: record all by himself. 3,509 strikeouts for Nolan Ryan. Tonight joining me on Hardball. Living Air Classic Legends of the Game. A gentleman as we make our pursuit to speak to every living Hall of Famer. Nolan Ryan. We go from four to three after speaking to him tonight when the Texas Rangers in town. Very fortunate to catch up with him tonight as he spends some time in Texas itself. Mr. Ryan, how you doing this evening? Everything's good. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you don't do a lot of these, and uh, and very much appreciated. I'm sure from the baseball fans around the Atlanta area.
1: We're glad to do it. Uh, There's awfully uh, good fans in
0: Atlanta. Yeah, and obviously your career. You know, we try to avoid the most obvious things and really just going to look back a little bit as how you got started and some of the people you perhaps played with and some of the signature moments. But I find it most interesting. You're the youngest of six. One of the stories I read is, were you about seven years old when you got that first baseball glove?
1: Well, I have a brother that's seven years older than I am, and so because of his interest in sports, I was able to tag along with him and his friends, and that's where I developed my interest uh, in baseball and and other sports, and uh, I was on my first organized team at
0: seven. In the Texas area, how did you actually follow the major leagues, or what was actually the way that you got information about what was going on around the majors?
1: Well, in those days, Houston was a Triple A, uh, had a Triple A ball club, which was a Houston bus, which was the uh, St. Louis Cardinals Triple A Farm Club. So we were able to pick them up on the radio, the Cardinals, um, with their 50,000-watt station. And then uh, the only other thing was the game of the week uh, on Saturdays, and that was your only exposure to Major League Baseball. Were you
0: a fan as a young man growing up, and what team did you actually find yourself rooting for well, or gravitating towards? I
1: think. I think I probably saw more of the Yankees on television. Uh, and so I think because of that, uh, um, I was probably more familiar with the Yankees. But uh, I think because of the World Series, uh, we always, that was a very big event to watch that or uh, uh, listen to it on radio that uh, I became a Braves fan when they were in Milwaukee and uh, probably knew... Uh, and followed the Braves probably uh, uh, more so than I did the Yankees as far as liking them.
0: And we'll talk about that first game. You actually pitched your first time in the major leagues against the Atlanta version of the That's Braves, correct? correct? And we'll talk about that lineup in a few minutes. But one of the other things I find interesting, when you have the arm you have, I guess a gentleman by the name of Red Murph was, a, was the guy who scouted you first and foremost?
1: That's correct. He saw me as a sophomore in high school and, and uh, followed me... Uh, Probably didn't miss, he or his bird dog scout didn't miss but maybe 10% of the games I fished after that once he saw me as a sophomore in high school.
0: How many other scouts actually came around besides uh, Red Murph?
1: Well, my senior year, uh, there were a lot of scouts that came through, but a lot of them didn't didn't really like me because I was 6'2 and weighed 150, and they just thought physically I wouldn't hold up.
0: What kind of arm are we talking about back in high school? I mean, I know there's no... I guess your high school coach may comment, we didn't really have a radar gun, and he didn't know how hard you threw till he went to a game in the Astrodome and saw Larry Durker throw. He's on record as saying, well, heck, I think Nolan throws just as hard as that guy, if not harder.
1: Well, you know, everybody asked me about how hard did I throw, and I always tell them why I was pre-radar guns. And, and <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Red Murph had, had seen me pitched as a sophomore, and he told our high school coach that uh, he'd been to the uh, – uh, Astros game and so uh, uh, Jim Maloney and Turk Farrell uh, faced each other who were two hard throwers and he said no one throws as hard as they do if not harder and so uh, you know I found that pretty hard to believe being uh, at that age but uh, he was convinced that uh, I had a major league arm and he followed me very closely.
0: Now when you throw as hard as you do and you have again some control issues there are some stories and I don't know what's fact and fiction uh, but was it true did high school players was there ever really a moment when a high school fl- player refused to bat against you, or is that one of those stories?
1: What happened, we were in a, uh, the final game of our district, and whoever won that game was going to go to uh, go into the state playoffs. And the, the first guy up, I hit him in the helmet and split his helmet, and the second guy hit him in the arm, broke his arm, and the third hitter up. Uh, that's when the coaches would uh, – the your coach would coach third base, and he went down and asked the coach not to hit. And uh, – that is true. I was very wild, and we played night games under bad lights, and so uh, I don't blame them for not wanting to hit.
0: Now, how much of an advantage is that for you as a pitcher at that moment?
1: Well, I think it's an advantage if you can get uh, the ball over, because at that point in time, those guys don't want to hit, and so they're going to give you as much of the plate as they can, and uh, that pretty much takes their aggressiveness away.
0: Now, how how did you last until the eighth round of that draft? I'm blown away that more people at least. You mentioned your size, but when I see an arm like that, how, how is it that you actually last that long?
1: Well, I think, you know, obviously it was uh, it was uh, before guns, so they were just strictly doing it off visual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we were a uh, 3A school, which was a uh, fairly small school in Texas, uh, and I think that uh, the scouts looked at me, and they just saw such a rough talent, and they, they probably felt like, well, physically and you'll hold up. He's got a great arm, but uh, he's so far from being a a major league pitcher that they probably didn't uh, project me to ever get to the big leagues.
0: Now going in the eighth round, I understand you actually make some at least alternative plans in case this baseball thing doesn't work out.
1: Well, you know, I asked for the college package and and stuff like that because uh, you know, I had no idea either whether I was major league uh, material or not. and, And if I had any any chance of getting to the big leagues. I was so far removed from that, so uh, I felt like, you know, if if baseball doesn't work out, then I need to be able to fall back on something and, and uh, have life after baseball.
0: One of the other things I find interesting is I've talked to so many gentlemen uh, from your era and even before. That idea of, okay, now it's time to sign that first professional contract, a lot of times it's done at the kitchen table. Uh, was that the scenario and scene when you actually made that decision to well, sign? No,
1: that's true because, uh, in, uh, that, that period of our society, uh, you know, where we sat down at at dinner time at, around the kitchen table in most households, uh, you didn't have formal dining rooms, mm-hmm. at, uh, in Alvin, Texas. And so, uh, everything was discussed and uh, done at the kitchen table. And uh, this was no different.
0: What did your dad think about this whole opportunity?
1: Well, I think that, uh, he probably thought it was a uh, an opportunity for me that uh, very seldom do a, a kid get a, an opportunity of that nature, and I was the last of six children, and I had two sisters in college, and I think my parents were in a position that even on a baseball scholarship that I uh, that financially they weren't going to be able to uh, afford three kids in college at one time.
0: And may I ask, her what did it actually cost the New York Mets to, to get Nolan Ryan to Become well, their property. With
1: the um, incentive package that they uh, they gave me in with the uh, the uh, college uh, money in there it was around twenty thousand dollars.
0: And w- in Alvin, Texas, what is twenty thousand dollars actually in the mid sixties?
1: Well, that was uh, in that that time an era. The the average salary uh, on a monthly basis was probably five six hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, twenty thousand dollars was uh, quite a bit of money. For and mainly for somebody uh, with a high school education, and, and getting a bonus of that nature.
0: Now, I don't want to infer too much, but is it my understanding that you actually delivered newspapers with your dad? And we're not talking about one of those "let's ride a bike and throw newspapers on the porch" type routes, are we?
1: Right. Well, we were, we uh, we had a distributorship of the Houston Post in uh, our community, and we threw fifteen hundred papers every night, and they came at one o'clock in the morning. So. Every morning we were up and met the truck and the papers came in and, and uh, we rolled and threw the papers and uh, would, on the weeknights, get to bed around 4, back to bed around 4, 4.30. And on uh, Sunday mornings, because of the Sunday paper, we probably wouldn't get back to bed till 5.30 or 6.
0: Fair to say that a work ethic is created pretty early in the Ryan household?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> that's what we knew was work. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously that... Uh, The influence my parents had on me and I think uh, uh, my four sisters and brother uh, was that, uh, you know, that was just part of life. We all had jobs and we worked and we understood that to be successful, you had to work and and, uh, apply your trade. And so I think that that was instilled in me at an early age by my parents.
0: Was there ever a moment when you just looked at that clock and said, not today, Dad? What would have happened if you would have actually tried that?
1: (laughs) No. You know, that never was even uh, considered or was an issue because, uh, you know, I think that it was also instilled is that uh, uh, we were responsible for that and people uh, relied on us to deliver that paper and that uh, uh, that was just what we accepted. And so, um, you know, I can't ever even think about uh, thinking that, you know, you sleep in and don't do it today.
0: Now, you go to the minor leagues. Obviously, your nocturnal habits might be a little bit different than some of the guys that are playing minor league ball with you, but you're not in the minor leagues all that long. We mentioned in 66, you come up and you actually have your first appearance in the big leagues against the Atlanta Braves.
1: Well, that's correct. My um, I signed a, oh towards the middle to the end of June in 65 and played uh, oh basically two and a half months in the uh, rookie ball and then. My first full season was '66, and went to Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, pitched there. And the season was over at the end of August, and then uh, uh, got called to the big leagues and, and uh, faced the Atlanta Braves in relief. Uh, uh, my first time out, and then started game. And uh, then I uh, left the ball club to enter uh, Alvin Community College, and mm-hmm. uh, I tried to go home in, a, in the off season and, and get as much education as I could
0: you're one or one and a half years removed, I guess from high school when you make that appearance against the Braves, how surreal is it for a young man from Alvin, Texas to be standing facing Henry Aaron and Eddie Matthews and anybody else you were going to face in that lineup?
1: Well, I can, I can still remember coming in the bullpen at Shea stadium to face the Atlanta Braves and facing, uh, uh, Eddie Matthews and Henry Aaron and, and, uh, uh, Lou and, uh, Cardi and, and Joe Torrey was on that team. And so I can remember, uh, not being that far removed and having their baseball cards. So it was quite <laughs> in, intimidating and being in an A an ball and then coming from A ball to there and having no idea if, if I had what it took to get those guys out or not. So needless say, uh, uh I was, uh, pretty scared about the whole situation. And, uh, and pretty much intimidated, not knowing uh, uh, how to pitch them. And so I went out there and and just threw the way I knew how to throw. And and, uh, uh, the first major league home run I ever gave up was to Joe Torrey.
0: Well, that's not bad. If you're going to give one up, you might as well give one up to a pretty good player. (laughs) (laughs) Now now, now the Mets were not a very good team, and everybody knows what happened in 1969, but they did have a lot of good young pitching. And there's a blessing, but there's also a curse in that. Is there not when you first get up?
1: Well, what we had was that uh, we were a very talented organization of young, uh, good arms. And because of that, uh, it was very competitive uh, with the arms that they had. And one of the problems that I had was that uh, I was rushed to the big leagues and uh, really didn't have the type of control and command that I really needed to pitch in the big leagues. And then I had a, uh, I was in a top priority uh, reserve unit, and so I flew home to Houston every other weekend during the season to make uh, my military obligation, and because of that, I never pitched on a regular basis. So the four years I was with the Mets, uh, I never really did develop any consistency.
0: What would have happened, do you think, if you stayed in New York? And everybody talks about Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi and what that trade really meant, certainly for California, but do you think you would have become anywhere near the pitcher you became if you had stayed in New York much longer than that
1: well, you know, it, it, it's hard to say because after the '69 uh, season and the World Championship, uh, the Mets were trying to duplicate that uh, and get back in the World Series, and they did that again in '73. But they were—they didn't really have the luxury of letting me pitch a lot of innings and with my control problems. And so, when they traded me to the Angels, what it enabled me to do was get in a four-man rotation with the Angels. Uh, start pitching about 300 innings a year. And also the pitching coach out there was Tom Morgan. And Tom truly helped me with my delivery. And I think Tom was a key uh, in those years that uh, I was with the Angels. I really call my foundation years uh, as far as my career is concerned.
0: Do you know a gentleman by the name, or have you ever heard the name Lloyd Gearhart?
1: That doesn't ring a bell.
0: This is the story that he tells. He was a scout for the Mets, and he was scouting the American League teams. And somebody asked him about Fergosi, and he came back, and he sent in a report saying, you know, I know he's winding down in his career, but he looks like he could probably help us. He goes, and of course, they make the trade. They trade you for basically Jim Fergosi. A few years later, he's no longer working for the Mets, and the story, as he tells it, is he goes back to New York, and everybody's looking at him funny. And he finally says, hey, what's going on? And they said, well, why would you actually tell the Mets to trade Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi?" And he said, I, I didn't tell the Mets to do that. So the story that he told was somebody had to take the hit for that trade, and he was going to be the one. But he didn't find out till a few years later that he actually was getting blamed for that one.
1: Huh. Well, I certainly understood their thinking behind that. They were wanting a third baseman, and they took Jim Fregosi, who had been an all-star shortstop, mm-hmm. thinking that they could move him to third, and that he was an offensive player and would still have plenty of range to play third, and he still had enough arm to play third. So I can understand their thinking that uh, they had a gap there and they were trying to fill it. And uh, the one thing they felt like their organization was blessed with was a lot of good arms. So I think they felt like that uh, uh, they could make that trade and it probably wouldn't hurt them.
0: Now the Ryan Express, um, Von Ryan's Express, a movie with Frank Sinatra, was that out at the time and is that how you got –
1: that's how I was tagged. The Ryan express was because of that movie. When it came out and one of the New York writers tagged me with that.
0: Now, what about Gil Hodges? You know, you talked about your control problems. He lets you pitch in relief in that 69 series. And, uh, was it Paul Blair that you got on an O2 pitch?
1: Right. And, uh, I, I can tell you, he brought me in against Atlanta, uh, with, uh, Rico cardi up, uh, with guys on, uh, first and third in the third inning. Uh, to face Rico, and I think we were down 3 2 at the time or something. And why he did that, I don't know. I guess it was a hunch that uh, if I was on, then, uh, you know, that uh, I might be successful. And then he did the same thing again uh, against Baltimore.
0: And it worked out.
1: Yeah,
0: I did. <laughs> <laughs> now, a couple, when you throw seven no-hitters, I know it's cheap and easy to talk about the no-hitters and, and certainly the numbers, 53 Major League records. I know all of that stuff because you do a little reading and certainly as you follow your career, that stuff jumps out at you. But I'm more curious as to your teammates' reaction. I know the whole gospel is don't bother the guy. Let him sit by himself. Nobody talk to the guy. But dependent upon a pitcher's personality, I've had pitchers tell me I was begging people in the seventh inning to just look at me, say something to me. What was your personality in the middle of all of that?
1: Well, my personality is I kind of uh, get into my start and what I'm doing, who I'm going to face in and, and the next inning. And, and so I'm not one that converses a lot during the game with my teammates. So, um, and I don't pay a lot of attention to superstitions. Uh, so, you know, I I didn't really pay attention to that. And I, I think after throwing the first couple of no-hitters and, and getting into the late innings and losing them, uh, I never really felt like uh, or even thought too much about a no-hitter until I got into the seventh because I knew the last nine outs were going to be the toughest outs for me.
0: And maybe it's just me, but I would assume you were probably the calmest guy on the field when all of that was going on in that seventh, eighth, and ninth inning because maybe it's some guys who hadn't been in the middle of that. You were in the middle of so many. Might it be a fair statement that some of your teammates were a little bit more nervous than you were?
1: Well, I think that uh, a lot of times your infield – Uh, probably starts feeling that because they don't want to make an error or they want to uh, make sure a ball doesn't get through. And and I can remember in the 6 no hitter against Oakland, Ricky Henderson came up with one out in the ninth, and he topped a curveball towards short. And Jeff Husson was our shortstop, and he had to come in on a run and he made a really great play where he fielded the ball and threw an underhand to beat Ricky, who was still very fast at the time. And I can remember him hollering, and just to see the emotion and the, the smile on his face that he made that play because he knew it was a big, it was a big time play. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and I can to this day still remember that. And, uh, when I think back on those games, uh, uh, obviously that's one of the plays that stands out. One thing about all the no-hitters, I can remember plays that were made in no-hitters that gave me an opportunity to throw a no-hitter, and a lot of times uh, you, you had no-hit stuff, but the difference between a no-hitter and maybe a one- or two-hitter is that uh, uh, a ball's hit where a play can't be made, and it may not necessarily have been hit hard.
0: Now, you mentioned no-hit stuff. Obviously, when you go to the mound, one of the good things when you're not having great control, infielders and outfielders get a little bit fidgety. When you get that under control, when you find out that, hey, maybe it's in California, I can throw strikes and I can get people out and I can even toy with them a little bit, I'd imagine the guys behind you understand that not only can something special happen tonight every time you take the mound, but it's the idea of being on your toes because you're going to be around the plate and you're going to give them a chance to not be wandering mindlessly uh, in their heads.
1: Well, fielders are going to, uh, respond to the type of game their pitchers are pitching. And if they're standing out there and a the guy's, uh, 3-1, 3-2, uh, 2-0 on hitters, all, you know, practically every hitter, those guys are standing around an awful lot. And, and, uh, it's hard for them to keep their concentration, their intensity. So when a pitcher is around the plate and they know things are happening, and, uh, then I think it, it uh, it helps uh, the fillers uh, to concentrate and, to, and to have that intensity level that they need.
0: I, I also have to ask a couple of true-falses. Norm Cash, people have told me, I wish there was a photo, uh, the at-bat. If I just mentioned Norm Cash, what's the first thing that's supposed to come to mind?
1: Well, naturally it'd be uh, being the last out of the second no-hitter and coming to uh, uh, the plate with the... Uh, Uh, Table (laughs) leg.
0: Now, are there are there any photos of that?
1: Well, you know, I I've never seen one. I don't know that the photographers knew what was going on (laughs) until the uh, umpire threw the made him throw it out.
0: (laughs) Now, you mentioned you're into your game, and it's a little bit stoic. But did you even crack a smile at that moment?
1: Well, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I knew Norm, and I knew the. uh, uh, character that he was and and I was a a norm cash fan so uh, I also knew that he was a tough out but uh, uh, I knew the lighter side of him but uh no because that was my second no hitter and it you know uh, is a very against a very uh a very tough uh predominant left-handed hitting lineup so uh, I probably don't think that I found that real funny at the
0: time. <laughs> now what about Pete Rose the night that he ties a national league hits record you uh You decided, or it's certainly seen you made a conscious choice not to give him a chance to break that against you.
1: Well, you know, Pete, when I think of Pete Rose, I think of Pete as the uh, ultimate competitor. And uh, he was hard for me to strike out. He was such a battler. He'd do anything he could to put the ball in play. And so after he tied Stan Musial's uh, National League hit record, and I struck him out the next three times, I don't think I ever did that before, and I never did it afterwards. And he was a good breaking ball hitter, and then for him to strike out the last time on three straight curveballs, uh, that was a very, on a personal basis, a very special evening for me. And then to watch Pete, out of frustration, beating his bat on the ground, going to the dugout and breaking it, and then getting in the dugout and turning and saluting me—that was one of the probably highest compliments that uh, I received as a as a competitor from a competitor.
0: Well, that's the full range of emotions from a baseball player, the frustration, but then also the tip of the cap to the guy who did it. Yeah. Did you almost really retire in 70 or 71, or is that, again, one of those stories? That was
1: true. I was so frustrated, and and, uh, between my uh, military obligation and flying back and forth to New York, it seemed like all I did was live on an airplane, and then when I got an opportunity to pitch with my control, I just uh, had regressed to the point that uh, I didn't, I was, uh, so, uh, I think distraught about it that I just felt like it was time I do something else that baseball wasn't, I wasn't meant to, uh, stay in baseball. And really, Ruth was the one that convinced me to stick it out through the season. And, uh, uh, I think she saw more talent in me than I saw myself.
0: Well, you certainly have mentioned her name quite a bit over the years. You talked about her being there and if not for her, I mean, that's literally a moment where, if not for her, who knows what happens?
1: Well, that's true. You know, you, uh, Uh, you never know how decisions in your life are going to impact you and how they impact you the rest of your life. And so, uh, uh, you know, if I'd have made that decision, who knows what would have happened and what uh, what I would have done in my life. And, uh, uh, you know, I feel like that the reason I was able to play 27 years is because of I have a great wife and and a very supportive wife that uh, enjoyed the sport, and uh, we raised our children in the sport, and uh, they came to love the game, and uh, and it reflects this day with their involvement in our AA uh, minor league ball club.
0: And congratulations on that. I know you've branched out, and I guess it's you and your son. You actually own a team.
1: Right. uh, Both of my boys, Reed and Reese, are involved in it, and uh, we have the Round Rock Express, which is the Astros AA uh, just north of Austin, here in uh, in the Texas League.
0: Nolan, is it tough when your last name is Ryan, and you know you're a pitcher? And I know you actually didn't you get a chance to pitch against your son?
1: Yes, when he was a freshman at University of Texas.
0: Mm-hmm. As a father, as proud as you are of his moments, is it also a little bit mm, cringing, a cringing sensation perhaps when people want to make the comparison with the last name being what it is?
1: Well, I don't think it's it's fair to the the children of of. Uh, uh, professional uh, athletes children to compare them to their fathers because uh, you know each and every one of them are different and just because uh, uh, one of your parents have a talent doesn't mean that that uh, gene is passed on and that automatically means that uh, that you're going to have that type of ability mainly when it's it's a, a god-given uh, talent that uh, is a unique and and special and so uh, i think they were compared and i don't think that was fair uh i felt like that uh, whatever my children wanted to pursue as long as they were happy and enjoyed it that i was supportive of that so if they wanted to pitch that was fine if they didn't that was fine too so it was uh it was disappointing at times to uh hear comments and and the way people reacted to them but uh i think they handled it very well and and uh i found that it was much tougher uh being a parent sitting in the stands than it did than it was to be a competitor cool. on a major league level
0: last two things um do you have any idea why you can throw as hard and why you could throw as hard as long as you did medically psychologically is there anything that would let you believe that you know why you were able to do this
1: no you know that my ability to throw was a gift you know it wasn't something i did and it, it uh i was blessed with the ability to do that you know you could go to uh kinesiologists and and the medical fields and and they would tell you it was my fast twitch muscles and the strength of my uh, uh core muscles and my torso and my leg drive and all that uh And all those things are factors, but uh, can you duplicate it? No, you know, either uh, people are blessed with that or they're not uh, the same as with speed, uh, whether it be running. And so uh, when someone has a gift like that, then the challenge is to try to maximize that. And what you try to do is develop the type of uh, delivery and be in the best condition. And I think I stayed away from any career crippling injury that took away my ability to throw, and then the aging process didn't affect me uh, maybe as as uh, early as it did some other people, and that's probably genetics too, and then also probably through proper nutrition and and, uh, and basically just taking care of yourself. So uh, there were a lot of factors that came together, and, and I was very fortunate, and I never lost my passion for the the game and for competing, and I think a lot of people that I played with, uh, they reached a point in their life that uh, they were ready to do something else and just didn't have that drive. and And I was very fortunate that I was able to maintain that
0: If I give you a few days to go loosen up, how hard do you think you could throw today? <laughs> I, and would it take a few days, or would it take a little bit longer than that? Well, you know, my I saw that commercial. I the, saw that commercial, by the way. I saw you knocking that can over
1: has trouble handling it, and I still throw on occasions, but, you know, if I really dedicated myself to trying to get in the best shape I could possibly get in a six-week period and and, uh, didn't have any kind of physical setbacks, how hard could I throw? I don't know, but the way my arm feels, I would think uh, uh, somewhere in the high 80s, probably. I don't know. That would be just a uh, a rough guess and Nolan Ryan sitting here telling you
0: that <laughs> now, you could still get major leaguers out. Then is what you're telling me after six weeks, let me well, just, I
1: don't know for how long,
0: but you could do it. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, you know, it, it, you know, that's the, the one of the un, uh, unusual thing about our sport is is by the time you get the game figured out and know how to pitch it <laughs> and all the things that you have to do, then you're too old to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you defied it for a long time. The last thing I look at everything on your resume Honestly, is it disappointing that there weren't more World Series appearances, even getting more I mean, you got a ring as early as nineteen sixty nine. When you say, Well, I'm gonna pitch until well, heck, what year was it? Nineteen ninety three? Yes. You must have believed that there was gonna be more World Series.
1: Well, after after the sixty nine series, a goal of mine was to be in a starting rotation in a World Series on a World Series team and we got close with the Angels and twice with the with the Astros. Uh, got within a couple of pitches of uh, going to the World Series, but it never happened. And that shows how tough that is. Mm-hmm. And, and it was disappointing that I didn't get an opportunity on a personal basis to, to pitch in another World Series. But uh, I feel very fortunate that I, I was on that Met team that uh, experienced that, and I wouldn't trade anything for it. And uh, so... You know, I uh, encourage guys that uh, that I played with that uh, uh, when you get that opportunity, you need to cherish
0: it. Well, Mr. Ryan, I appreciate the time that you spent with us tonight. As I said, I know you don't do much of this, but greatly appreciate it. I know a lot of baseball fans are looking forward to, you know, talking to me about this after they actually hear it on the air. So I just wanted to thank you. I know things are going really well for you. You're actually you're a working ranching man. You just don't have land. You actually work your land.
1: Well, you know, I enjoy... Uh, I enjoy being outdoors. I enjoy the the cattle business, and uh, we have a beef business, so uh, I'm very involved in it, and I enjoy that, and it's very rewarding to me, and uh, it's uh, uh, a good time to visit because of the Ranger Atlanta Mm -hmm. series going on, and and, I appreciate uh, uh, you giving me a call, and I enjoyed the
0: visit. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Ryan. I saw your wife actually found a notebook. You were a man who knew what he wanted pretty early in life. You wrote five goals down and you, you hit a bunch of them on the head, did you not? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well,
1: you know, that was one of the things that I heard that you're supposed to do in early ages, write down what your goals are. And uh, uh, it was kind of interesting uh, 10 or 15 years later to go back and review that and, and uh, see what you had accomplished and uh, uh, what in those days you thought uh, were important.
0: Well, it's funny. I said it on the air just today, not knowing if we were going to do this. Um, you know, I've always had, I hope, the utmost respect for military people, but I have a newfound respect. I just became a homeowner fairly recently, and I have a piece of land that's the size of a postage stamp. But when I actually tried doing something to it, turning some dirt and planting a few things and praying that it would grow, all I know is this. If my family relied on me for the food on the table tomorrow, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble and we'd be hungry. Well, I think if they relied on you, you'd get a lot better at <laughs> <laughs> Well, nice of you saying so, sir. All right. Nolan, thanks very much. Have a great night. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. George W. Bush, hoping like all of us are that Nolan Ryan can get his 300th victory. The question is,
1: will he complete it? And the answer has been given. Bobby Valentine out of the Ranger dugout, and that will do it for Nolan Ryan tonight. Arnsberg's pitch, fly ball, center field. This should do it. Pettis makes the catch, and Nolan Ryan and the Rangers are victorious. Nolan Ryan, his 300th career victory. And you can charge up the bus for Cooperstown. Nolan Ryan officially has had his ticket validated. We went to uh, Clubhouse and went to the coach's room and and did the uh, scout report. He just told me, you put fingers down and I throw it, but you follow me, and we're going to have a good game. The Express has done it once again. Uh, Stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas The prairie sky is wide and high Deep in the heart of Texas The sage and blue is like perfume Deep in the heart of Texas Reminds me of the one I love Deep in the heart of Texas